0: Alright, we are in our, uh, <laughs> in our study of Acts, we're going through the book of Acts, and this morning we're going to be reading verses uh, 14 through 21 of chapter 2, we're going to be really focusing in on verse 14 um, this morning. And so, now that I'm not going to say anything else about the concert, would you stand with me let's look at the word of God together. This is God's word. It says, "But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, "Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give heed to my words, for these men are not drunk as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day, but this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days," God says. That I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my bond slaves, both men and women. I will in those days pour forth my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and the glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The word of the Lord. Thanks be God. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, Heavenly Father, we thank you that we are living in the last days. We thank you that we know what comes next after this momentary, This fleeting life passes us by. We are not left to the cold, harsh realities of non-existence. We are not left to to the impersonal design of the universe. No, we are carried in your arms into eternity by you, our Father. Even as we look forward to that day, we thank you that you have not left us alone, but you are present here with us. Thank you for sending your Holy Spirit. And now we ask that your spirit would fill us and work with power in our lives. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, the one who gave us the promise to send his spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. We're looking together at the book of Acts. And throughout history, the book that we are going through has been called by various names. It's not to say that the book hasn't been primarily referred to just simply as the book of Acts, but it has had various appendages that have been tagged onto it by people throughout history in an attempt to clarify whose Acts these are comprised of, the book is comprised of. So at various points throughout the history of the church, the book that we're going through now has been called the Acts of the Apostles. At other points, it has been called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And, of course, you can see the rationale behind either of these titles. The book is an account of both. You can't really separate them. It is interesting that there are two times in the Bible that God acknowledges that man has been given a task that he is incapable of carrying out on his own. There are two times... Specifically in the Bible, where we are told that we, that you, that I, have a need for a helper. Twice, we're told. The first is after God's great work of creation found in Genesis. After he created the world and filled it, after he created the sky and the light and the water, the animals. We're told that he looked at everything that he had created and it was good. And he instructed the first man, Adam, to name all of the things that he had made. And upon completion of that task, Adam was going to go on and start cultivating and subduing the earth. But there was a problem. And what was the problem? Well, the problem was that in naming all of the creatures, as he had gone down through all of them and given them their names, he had found that there was not a helper suitable for him and so to remedy this God said it is not good for man to be alone I will make a helper suitable for him and he created Eve a wife woman for Adam the second time that we're told of our need for a helper is mentioned by Jesus he promised this and that this would come right after his great work was finished Right after he would lay down his life for us, right after he would take up that life again, after he was resurrected, after he would return to his father and, and, and put a, 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 a sort of a, the final point on his earthly ministry in the ascension, he was going to send a helper. He would provide you with a helper suitable for the task that he had left you with. Essentially, very similarly to cultivate the world with the good news of his gospel so let me ask all of you who are parents in the room who's raising your children who's raising the kids that may sit next to you this morning is it you father or is it you mother Of course you both are at certain points it's it's very hard to discern one versus the other especially in a godly marriage, because the work of a father and a mother are so intertwined. There's so many layers that overlap. And as Paul says, in marriage, a husband and a wife, father and mother, become one flesh. And, and you sort of see that reality in child raising. You know, you see the effects of both of you so intermingled in the child that you have if you're a parent. And I want to say that while it's possible to take this parallel that I'm trying to make for us too far, I want to point out that there is a parallel in Scripture When we come to understand our need for Jesus' love and salvation, we're born again, and the Bible says that our hearts of stone are replaced by hearts of flesh. We become soft-hearted and warmed to Jesus, and the Holy Spirit is the one who gives us this new heart, this heart of flesh. And he doesn't just give it to us and leave, but he resides within us, and we are united to him. And so there's many parallels that are interesting to think about, but more than interesting, I, think I hope that they're instructive and helpful for us as we uh, talk about uh, Peter in our, in our passage this morning. I say all of this about the Holy Spirit uh, because it's of great importance that we maintain two central realities if we are to be faithful to Jesus in our lives. Do you want to serve Christ? Do you want to honor Him? Do you want to see His, his power at work? in your life, and through you, then you must remember two things. The first is this. Jesus expects something of you. The Christian life is not a life of upper-middle-class convenience and blessing. Alone. You know, that's, that, that's not what the Christian life is. It isn't analogous to the American dream lived out in a pious way. It's not a life of spiritual aspirations of the mind. He expects you to serve him with your life. The church is not a club. It is a family. He expects you to serve and to love. He expects you to run the race that he set before you with all that you have. He expects you to stand for what is right and true. To love your neighbor more than you love yourself. The life that he calls you to is eminently practical. You are the one he is called to do his work. You are the one who is called to teach others about him. You are the one who is given much, and much is expected of you. So he expects something from you. But second, and these two things go together, it's the power of the Holy Spirit that takes what you do and uses it and makes it effective. It's not your power. It's his. It's not your greatness. It's God's. It's not your glory it's God's these are two married realities that God expects something from you he expects you to give your life to him your actions your thoughts your words your deeds having said that at the same time it's not all that stuff you do that has the great power and glory it's the Holy Spirit that putting wind in your empty sails but God calls you to hoist your sail for him to use that analogy. If you desire to see the Holy Spirit's power in your life and in your relationships, you must act. That's not putting down the work of the Holy Spirit. I'm saying that these, His power and our action go together. Those who do not act do not see any result. But of course, the power, even in our action, is of the Holy Spirit. It's God's power working through us. So the book of Acts is the history of, of the earliest days of the church, the initial spread of the gospel. And as we'll see, it was not done through angelic declarations. In the book of December, we often will read as a family through the portion of Luke 2 together. We memorize the this, this section, uh, section of Luke 2. And, you know, the shepherds were out in their field keeping watch over a flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them and the the shepherds were so afraid, but the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news. In the, gospel of Acts, in, the, in the book of Acts, it's not those angels that are the ones appearing, heralding the good news. It's men, it's women, just like you. God expects something of you. He expects you to speak, to stand for him, to live for him. And he will add his power to you, to your effort as you do it. Over the past couple weeks, we've considered the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. This morning, we consider the great example that we have in Peter. We consider the counterpart, if you will, to the Holy Spirit's power, our action, and we see it in Peter. Now, remember the scene as we come into this section. What is the scene? Well, it's the day of Pentecost, 50 days since Passover has elapsed. December 3rd is today's date. Fifty days ago, what were you doing? It was, it was the middle of October. I think 50 days-ish ago from today would be the 15th. What were you doing then? I was thinking about this myself, being that my birthday is the 14th, and I remember what I was doing. I was looking forward to the 16th when we would celebrate my birthday. A little later that week, we had our trunk-or-treat event. So maybe some of you were gathering with your small groups and working on your trunks. I don't know what you were doing, but whatever it does, whatever you did, it probably doesn't seem that long ago. If you can remember anything that happened in that time frame, it really doesn't seem very long ago. That's how long it was ago on the day of uh, of Passover in Jerusalem. That's it was basically seven weeks, a little, maybe a little more, a little more, but essentially seven weeks. Since Jesus was betrayed by Judas, since Jesus' death was demanded by the Jewish leaders, since the masses in Jerusalem had shouted, Crucify him, crucify him. Seven weeks since he had, Jesus had said, It is finished. So on this day, this day of Pentecost, the disciples had gathered early in the morning and were worshiping and praying when at 9 a.m., the hour of prayer, the Holy Spirit was sent. There was a loud sound which caused many in the city to come and inquire what the noise was. And when they came to where the disciples were gathered, they observed that tongues of fire were resting upon the disciples and they heard them speaking in various languages, declaring the mighty deeds of God. Many were amazed. They marveled. They wanted to know more. But others mocked. They mocked what they did not understand. They mocked what their ears were not open to hearing. They accused the disciples of being drunk. Frame up the scene in your mind. Imagine the crowd that gathered outside. You likely imagine a few dozen people, maybe even a couple hundred people. But we're told later, after Peter's sermon, later in in chapter 2, that those who heard Peter's sermon and accepted or believed his words were almost 3,000 people. This means that there is far more likely to have been a few thousand people here with the disciples than a few hundred. Some heard what the disciples said and wanted to know more, but there was a contingent that mocked. And I, I, I sort of try and flesh this out for us because I want us to understand that there's intensity to this moment. That this is, this is not just a ho-hum, you know, little gathering of a few people that have come to see what's going on. This is a big deal. There's a lot on the line. What's going to happen? This is, as I was thinking about it, sort of like the David and Goliath showdown in the New Testament. We have the unbelievers, the mockers, those who stand and mock God. What's going to happen? Is there anyone who's going to come forward? Is there anyone who's going to grab this opportunity by the horns and do something with it? And then here in our passage, verse 14, the verse I said we're going to be focusing on this morning, We have a great entrance, and what is that entrance? Well, look at verse 14 if you have your Bibles with you. Verse 14 starts by saying these two words, But Peter, but Peter. Now our minds may not immediately recognize the importance of these two words, but Peter is very glad to have these two words recorded by Luke. They illustrate the great work that Jesus has accomplished in his life. They display the powerful change that the Holy Spirit has already made in his heart. And they teach us that those who are content with only an interchange, an interchange of the heart and not the experience of power of Christ to redeem the full man, the head, the heart, the mouth, the arms, the feet are lacking something very, very great. Peter has been changed. Don't fall for the lie that Jesus is content with your heart or with your mind, but is not jealous for your hands and for your mouth. If he is to have you, and I suspect you want him to own you, to have you, to say, yeah, he's mine, then he will have all of you. This is a lesson that Peter had to learn, and we see evidence of this in our text. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, stood and spoke to them, saying, okay, where else are these Words used, but Peter, where else? I was thinking about it earlier this week, and so I decided to look some up. But Peter said to Jesus, Though all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. But Peter kept insisting, saying, Even if I have to die with you, Jesus, I will not deny you. But Peter was following Jesus at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. This is during Jesus' trial, fallacious trial. And he entered into the courtyard, and he sat down with some of the officers to see the outcome But Peter. A servant girl, seeing Peter as he sat in the firelight, looked intently at him and said, this man was with Jesus also. But Peter denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. A little later, another saw him and said, You are one of them too. But Peter said, Man, I am not. About an hour had passed, and another man began to insist, saying, Certainly this man was with him, for he's a Galilean too. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. Now, you may recognize why two seemingly small, insignificant words in our passage have in them such glory and power. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. There are other but Peter passages that aren't so glorious, courageous, or faithful. Something here is different. Something here has changed. These words are not the words of a hasty, impulsive zealot. They are not the words of a coward who's seeking to run from trouble. They are not the words of a man who's seeking to save his own skin. They are the words of a man who has come to know the love and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. They are the words of a man who has received the power of the Holy Spirit that is promised to all those who love Jesus. They are the words of a man who has been given the authority by Jesus to carry the good news to all the nations. Peter takes his stand. And so this morning, I want to latch onto to that idea and I want to ask you, are you willing to take a stand? Are you willing to have Peter as your example Do you want the same power that Peter had? Are you willing to follow him? Are you willing to take a stand? There are a few ways in which Peter takes a stand in this passage. I want to consider each of them in turn. A couple main ones and then a couple of points at the end I want to uh, touch on briefly. The first is this. Peter takes his stand for the Lord. Well, that's obvious. But I want to think on that for a few moments with you. Peter takes his stand for the Lord. This is clearly illustrated by his willingness to go forward and face the mockers like David with Goliath. We'll consider Peter's response to the crowd, his actual words, as quoting from Joel and, and after that his sermon next week, but I want to highlight the boldness first of his stand. He does not cower. He does not shrink back. He says, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. These are not the words of a man who's on the fence. This is not the way someone speaks when they're apprehensive or unsure about the things that they speak of. He speaks to them what God has said. Contrast this with the situation we just referred to. A few weeks earlier, when he was sitting by a fire, being accused by a young woman around him and being so afraid, denying, even swearing, I do not know that man. This is a bold stand for only a handful of weeks later. What's happened? Well, what's happened is that Peter has received the power of the Holy Spirit. When you were born again, you are changed. The Spirit's power in your life leads to real change, not hypothetical change. It's a change that starts internally. It often begins in the heart, but it radiates outward from the heart. Peter is a changed man. He has received the power of the Holy Spirit and that makes him stand and speak without shame or hesitation or fear. He's received real power and he uses it. Today the power of Christianity is almost completely theoretical. Or if not theoretical, it's internal. It's a power of the mind. It's a power of the heart to to want certain things. But it's disconnected so often from our bodies, from our mouths, from our lives. We talk about the power of the gospel. We're grateful for the work of Christ in our hearts. But so many are impotent. They have so little power in their life. So little courage. James, Jesus' brother, will write, in his book of the, of the New Testament, if a brother or sister is without clothing, without something they need for their daily food. And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you don't give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? Of course, there's no use to that. And yet so many live like this is Jesus' approach with them, that he says, my peace I give to you. Have peace, I've saved you, your life is, you're one of mine now. And yet he provides nothing or little that actually deals with the sins and the fears, the habits and the vices that cause you to be miserable and powerless. Is Jesus like the man who says, my peace to you, and then leaves you cold and naked? Is that the Jesus you believe in? What does your life testify to what you believe? Now, Jesus never says to the cripple, your faith has made you well and smiles and walks away, leaving the cripple down on the mat. I'm so thankful for that piece. I wonder what he means by that. No, that's not Jesus. That's not the way he heals. That's not the way he saves. He tells the invalid to stand, to walk. This is the nature of the new birth as well. He not only forgives, but he cleanses. He not only heals, but he makes strong. Remember the passage from Ezekiel that we read last week. It said that Jesus is going to sprinkle, God will cleanse us and sprinkle his water on us, and we will be clean. And then he goes on to say that I will put my spirit within you. This is one of the, the prophecies about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. I will put my spirit on within you. Why? What's it going to do? Okay, well, he gives us an answer. And it will cause, he will cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe all of my ordinance. So we are saved. We are given his spirit. And what's the result? Walking in his statutes, being careful to observe God's commandments and, c- commandments and ordinances. And in other words, the result is that we live the most privileged, fortunate, joyful, powerful life ever. And you say, "Well, I'm not so sure living and carrying out God's commandments and ordinances is, you know, a joyful thing." Well, you're you don't agree with David then. You read Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is a reflection, a meditation, a very long one, on the on the pure privilege and glory and joy of being able to live a life that is pleasing to God, that revels in all the benefits and the blessing that come with being obedient to what God has said. God has said. Live this way. And guess what? When you live the way God says, your life is actually happy. There's a thought. So the Holy Spirit is given to you, not just so that something's applied to you that in heaven one day in the future will be recognized, but to give you power and the ability to be freed from sin so that you can observe what God has commanded you to. And that is a wonderful life. If your life is powerless, then... Don't sit in judgment on God. Don't wonder why the Holy Spirit doesn't seem to do anything for you. You ought to consider whether you actually have the Holy Spirit within you. That should be where your mind is at. Peter has received power and he takes his stand for the Lord before the crowd, a crowd that could be very hostile to his message. Peter has no way of knowing the response and yet he takes his stand with boldness and with love. He's no longer ashamed to declare Jesus to the masses. Take a stand. Are you willing to? Are you willing to declare Christ to the masses? He's given you his spirit. Are you ashamed of him? You may say to me, "I have no problem with people knowing I'm a Christian. How <laughs> glad I'm glad I'm glad you don't. But remember that Jesus says... Whoever is ashamed of me and my what? It's not just a matter of people knowing you're a Christian. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in glory. We aren't to be ashamed of Jesus or his words. This means that like Peter this week, like, like the disciples last week, We are to share the truth and the greatness of God. We are to declare the mighty deeds of God to the world that is lost and that does not understand it. Peter took a stand for God. Will you? Are you willing to? The second thing I want to say is that Peter took not just a stand for God, but Peter took a stand against himself. Now, what do I mean by this? Well, the power of the Holy Spirit has filled him. We've just been talking about that. It does not mean, though, that he is impervious to the temptations of his own sinfulness. It does not mean that he doesn't have to face or battle his old worries or fears. In fact, there's going to come a time that we'll talk about as we go through the book of Acts that Peter again succumbs to fear of man. What others are going to think of him? He's going to succumb to his sinful desire to be at peace with man rather than to do what he did here in this chapter and be bold for what God had said. So the Holy Spirit does change us. He does give us his power, and yet we are not and yet we are uh, we are not what we will be one day. We still are tempted. You are tempted, I am tempted. We still have an old nature. I am still jealous and proud. We, we have to wage war with the, this old nature within us. The Holy Spirit, though, does give us the power to overcome all of those temptations. His power is never lacking. It's always there. But what, not, what is not always there is our desire to actually deal with our temptations and go to war with our wrong desires. We still fear man. We still have wrong motivations and desires. So this is why the Apostle Paul when considering his own internal dueling desires, says, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? He recognizes that short of eternity and being in heaven with God, he's going to have this war within him, these natures that are pulling, and the Holy Spirit provides all the power he needs to overcome, but his heart is so desperately wicked, and he understands that. Who will set me free from the body of this death? But thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. He understands who gives him the power to overcome these dueling desires. So if you were to be like Peter, if you are to stand for God, then you must stand against yourself. Or if you aren't willing to stand against yourself, then you really aren't willing to stand for God. There are many who will claim that they want to stand for God, that they're going to do things for Him, that they're not ashamed. But it is revealed that in truth they only stand for themselves in the fact that they are never willing to tell themselves no. They're never willing to stand against their own hearts, their own fears, their own selfish motivations, their own lusts. The man, the woman of God, always sees the power of the Spirit most sharply, acutely applied to themselves. The man or the woman that sees all around them, above, below, and surrounding them, the need for the Holy Spirit's power, and is always speaking to those needs without ever recognizing that the Holy Spirit actually must work most significantly right here, it is a man or a woman who is deceived about the power that they think they have. It's quite easy to stand against others, to look at the speck in someone else's eye, Have you seen the log that is in your own? Have you known your need for the Spirit to deal, God to deal with the log in your eye? It's easy to stand against things like uh, wokeness or to watch the news and to cheer on those who parrot your own opinion. It's far easier to not shop at certain stores and to argue with people online and to have all your, your opinions that you stand for My point is not really that you never need to stand against anything else, but my point is, and don't miss this if you do not stand against yourself, if you are not willing to stand down your own desires, the desires of your heart first, you can stand against a lot of other things, but the Holy Spirit will not add His power to it. It's just not the way He works. He won't work through proud men. He tells you that. You shouldn't be surprised. Are you willing to stake a stand against yourself to the power of God? This is what Peter's doing. While we recognize the power of the Spirit and while we see that he is courageously standing for God, do not fail to recognize that here on the day of Pentecost, in this moment, he is also standing against himself, his old nature. He's standing against the coward that he was seven weeks ago and saying, I'm not going to be like that by the power of God. So first, Peter stands for God. Second, Peter stands against himself. And now... There are a couple of um, things that are more brief that I'd like to mention that flow from these two initial considerations. The third, so the first stands for God, second stands against himself. The third thing I want to say is that he stands with the 11. He stands with the church, but Peter taking his stand with the 11. This is purposeful. And what I want to say is because we are still often weak, and because we are often prone to doubting, God has given you the church to be a help. He hasn't called you to stand and then it, put you on a desert island. He's given you a wonderful family to stand in the midst of. And how many of you know it's easier to stand and be bold when there are those that surround you that love you, that are willing to, to be with you and to carry you? We often don't feel strong ourselves, and God is surrounded All of us, and given us the strength to stand for Him when we feel too weak to do it on our own. A couple nights ago, we just finished as a family reading *Pilgrim's Progress* together, and there's that scene at the very end: um, uh, the land of delight, and Christian and Hopeful are making their way through the land of delight, and they've been warned not to stop. The plains on the land of delight don't have any fences that that keep them from being protected from the enemy. And they've been warned, don't stop, but, but Hopeful gets so tired, and he just wants to lay down and take a nap for just a few moments. And Christian, in that moment, says, no, no, you can't. And the scene is such that C- Christian is speaking to Hopeful, and Hopeful keeps wanting to lay down, and his, uh, he's yawning. Christian ends up shaking him, saying, no, no, no. And in so doing, he wakes up Hopeful, and he actually wakes himself up. And this is a beautiful picture of the work of the church and why you need the church. Are you willing to stand with the church? God gives you strength through it. Another reason that God has given you the church is that we often actually don't want to stand against ourselves. This can look like a lot of things. It can look like not wanting to address something in our own life. It takes a friend to bring it up for us to deal with it. Can look like not wanting to address something in your children, or wrongly, but feeling like you can't. And therefore, the church has been given to God. Has been given by God to you to help you, to strengthen you where you're, where you have a need, where you're weak, where you fail. You must stand with the church, though. If you aren't willing to stand with the church, these benefits will will meagerly be applied to you because of your lack of investment in her. God's given the church to us and we all need the church. So Peter stands quite literally with the church. It was pretty small back then. This is the very beginning of it. We see that. And finally, fourth, Peter stands for the good of his hearers. He didn't need to engage the mockers. He could have walked away. He could have written them off. He could have shook the dust off his feet and moved somewhere else. But Peter loved his fellow Hebrews. He pitied their blindness. He knew what it was like to hear the words of Jesus and not understand. He had compassion on them and knew that if they heard the truth, the truth would set them free. And so he spoke, no doubt praying that God would open their ears, even as he was speaking. Remember that true love for God always flows in line with true love for others. Those two things are never in tension with each other. Think about the potential risks that Peter undertook in speaking the truth to this crowd, yet he did it for their sake, for their good. He wasn't angry. There were moments Peter was sort of the, the, a bit bombastic at times. You remember in the garden when they came to take Jesus, he pulled out his sword and, and lopped off the ear of the servant of the high priest. That's not the sort of thing we see here. The sort of thing we see here is that he wants to get to the quoting from Joel so that they might hear at the end of that glorious passage, it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then he follows up that quotation from the Old Testament by expounding on what that means for them, what it means to actually put their hope in Jesus Christ, the man that many of them had been shouting, crucify, crucify, just weeks before. Peter loves these people. And he takes a stand for their good. When we don't take a stand, we don't love other people. You recognize that. Peter loved these people. While it was the power of the Holy Spirit that changed Peter and gave him the courage and the conviction to stand, Peter still had to get up. He still had to speak. He still had to look at those that were mocking and speak. He still had to oppose the fears that were... In his heart, those that have tasted the power of the Holy Spirit will not shrink back from standing. Stand for God. Stand against yourself, your fears, your wrong desires, your bitterness. Stand for the church. Recognize your need of her. Stand for a world that is desperately lost and doesn't understand, is blind stand for your love for them for them be courageous let's pray